Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, I'm your host James Rogers and this is a pretty special episode of the History Hit World Wars podcast. 30 years ago, this month, 39 nations and almost 900,000 troops gathered on the Saudi-Iraqi border, ready to push Saddam out of Kuwait. Saddam had argued that the US and its allies were societies which just couldn't accept 10,000 dead in one battle, and the Gulf War, according to Saddam, would be the mother of all battles. It should be remembered that Saddam had one of the largest armies in the world. They were not highly trained, but they had up to 1 million troops. Hospitals in the UK readied themselves for mass casualties and the US was planning for an up to 50% casualty rate, especially as Saddam had made some pretty horrendous promises about chemical weapons. But this war, Saddam's war, never played out the way that he had wanted it to. Instead, due to high-tech advances in US and Allied air power, and a bombardment plan inspired by American bombing strategy during the Second World War, Saddam was bombed into submission before his troops could really fight on the ground. The operation became known as Desert Storm, and in this special episode of The World Wars, I'm joined by Lieutenant General David Deptula, the US Air Force Principal Attack Planner for Desert Storm and the Coalition Air Campaign. He illuminates how the events transpired on that fateful day in January 1991, how the planning played out in the special planning group known as the Black Hole, and he explains, in his own words, the successes and the controversies of the Gulf War. Hi Dave, thank you so much for coming on The World Wars. How are you doing today? Yeah, very good James. Thanks for having me and addressing this very, very important subject area. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast We usually delve into the periods of the world wars, but it seems pretty justified to have a special episode to mark the 30th anniversary of the Gulf War, because you were the principal air attack planner in that war, weren't you? Yes, sir. I sure was. It was quite an experience and one that was really one of the highlights, if not the highlight of my uh, 35, almost 35 year career. Well, take us back to those days in, well, when would you say the Gulf War began? Because 
Saddam's troops moved over into Kuwait in, was it August 1990? Did it begin then for you? Well, it's interesting that you raise that question because it just so happens that the summer of 1990, I had been doing a bunch of reading. At the time, I was working for the Secretary of the Air Force, Don Rice. I was a newly promoted lieutenant colonel. And I've always had a, an interest in the history of air power stimulated by my dad. And that summer in June and July, I actually read two books, both by retired General Haywood Hansel. The first one was The Air Plan That Defeated Hitler. And it was about how Hansel and some of the early planners has, had put together Air War Planning Document One. And then I was so entranced with that one, I picked up his second one which was the strategic air war against Germany and Japan. So it was sort of fortuitous that I read both of those books that yielded some firsthand insight into how one of the key planners of World War II thought about from both a theoretical and a practical perspective, the takedown of these two nation states. And while I was familiar with strategic bombing theory before that, it sort of refreshed and gave me insights that I never really had before. Now, at the same time, you have to understand, before I went to work at for Secretary of the Air Force Rice, I worked in the Air Force Doctrine Division for a guy named Colonel John Warden. And John and I kind of hit it off in terms of perspectives on the use of an application of air power. And as you know, we both kind of became instrumental once Saddam invaded Kuwait. Uh, bottom line is I was on vacation and he was on vacation. He was on a cruise and my family had taken my parents to uh, the uh, West Indies for their 40th wedding anniversary. And we are on our way back to uh, Washington when Saddam invaded. I remember watching the news sitting in my mom's condo in Florida and thinking, okay, how's this going to work out? Little did I know then that less than two weeks after that, I would be on a plane headed to uh, Riyadh and getting involved in the planning and application. But that's where I was when this happened. So when you say, when did it happen for me? I was preparing for this, not knowing about it many months in advance. And I'll go one step back further. In the fall of 89, winter of 90, I was the ghostwriter for the document that Secretary of the Air Force Don Rice signed out entitled Global Reach, Global Power, which essentially was a white paper that outlined how the United States Air Force was going to manage this transition from a Cold War era to a post-Cold War era and highlight what the virtues and values of the Air Force were and what they contributed to national security. So that was all a prelude to this, too, before we really got into the planning phase. I have got so many questions because that's really useful to help us frame and understand your line of thinking, but also U.S. Air Force lines of thinking as they were going into the Gulf War, that transition from the Cold War period, you know, the Cold War just coming to a simmering close instead of that big bang, and then what the next war is going to look like. And it fascinates me that you were reading some of these stories of success from the Second World War from some of the biggest names in American air power planning, like Hansel. 
Because at the time, they weren't particularly lauded for their successes, were they? I mean, precision bombing doctrine, which was the core staple of the US Army Air Service, was abandoned halfway through the war. Um, so what was it about these writings that made you think that this could be something that's actually quite inspiring for the next war? Well, your question is interesting because the way that you just asked that question, you said, what was it that you thought, well, your question indicates a retrospective perspective, as if I knew in advance when I was reading those documents that I was preparing to be a planner for the next war, which I wasn't. And that's where I think historians have to be very, very careful in interviewing folks. And I tell folks this too. I go, listen, you got to be real careful, particularly with senior officers, because you have to ask them to go back and answer their questions in the context of what they knew at the time, not information that they later learned that they can fill in, you know, and I've seen that happen with many of the retrospectives on Desert Storm, even by participants. And I know they didn't know what they wrote about at the time. And so I think that is a digression, but I think it's an important one with respect to history and how people interpret events. No, it's a good point. I suppose you've got to be careful of those stories that we tell ourselves that justify our own histories and our own place in history as well. So that's actually really refreshing and useful to hear. And people can tell both stories, at least some of them who recognize it. Some people don't recognize it and they believe they had this omnipotent. I'll give you a good example. The army history of the Gulf War that was written by Bob Scales. If you go back and you read that history, it doesn't say one negative thing about any of the actions of the senior army officers who participated. Well, that's ridiculous. Everybody makes mistakes or you take action that afterwards might not have made sense or maybe did make sense, but you do it because of the information that you had at the time. And I compare and contrast Bob Scales' book with Rich Reynolds' book, The Heart of the Storm. It basically discusses in detail, firsthand account, through interviews with myself and others who were there, the initial planning phases of what went on in building the instant thunder concept. But the fact of the matter is, there were senior Air Force leaders tried to prohibit that book from getting published. The only reason it was published is because the chief of staff of the Air Force, Ron Fogelman at the time, insisted that it be published. And the reason people were fighting getting it published is because it didn't paint all the senior general officers in the most beneficial presentation. It's a good compare and contrast of how history is approached. But the fact of the matter is, when I was reading those books, I had no idea what was going to happen next. You know, I was reading them from interest and understanding more about our heritage and what went on. And so... In looking backwards at them, it's pretty incredible because what Hansel was trying to do and his planners like George and others were looking at the key essential elements of Germany and Japan. What are the terms that we've used over the years? What are the key centers of gravity that if affected could have a leveraged impact on the adversary? And so reading that book underscored that philosophy, which also fit into John Warden's concept of his five rings approach. Now, five rings 
leadership, key essentials, infrastructure, population, and fielded military forces. Originally, in his theory, he laid them out in circles with leadership in the center, key essentials around it, infrastructure outside of that, population outside of that, field military forces outside of that. Essentially, that's what Hansel and George and Arnold were doing. They just had different labels. They had a variety of different elements. But reading what he had done and what the planners had done in World War II, in retrospect, the theory was pretty similar that we were trying to apply when you move forward to Desert Storm. The difference was the technology of the times in World War II simply had not advanced to be able to accomplish what they wanted to do. If you look at a nominal large thousand plane raid in World War II, that's 10,000 people, that's about 9,000 bombs. And maybe, maybe you'd hit 50% of a single area target because the CEP combined effects probable or half the bombs drop would fall inside this range was about a half a mile. So that means half the bombs fell outside of a half of a mile of the target. So there was not a lot of precision involved in World War II precision bombing. But what had happened now, by the time you got to Desert Storm, I could target one bomb, one target. The accuracy of the F-117 with laser guided bombs was that good, or an F-111 with a GBU-12. And so what I had was the virtue of technology that had advanced to catch up with the theories that Hansel and George and Andrews and Arnold had talked about and discussed at a very, very macro level would allow the success of Desert Storm. And what happened there is that technology had enabled the theories that our forefathers had anticipated and it became a reality. And that's fascinating because it goes even further back than that. If you look at even earlier American air power doctrine out of the First World War and people like Gorel, they're looking at industrial web theory and what becomes known as precision bombing doctrine. The idea that you can hit these core nodes, these targets, these industrial military complex sites within cities, and you can really degrade the teeth of the enemy so that when you do meet them on the battlefield, you can move straight through. And for me, that kind of starts to resonate with what happens in the Gulf War. So perhaps you can take Take us behind that curtain a little bit to that backroom planning before hostilities start in January 1991. The interesting part of this, and one of these days I'm going to write a book, I've been wanting to write a book about this for 30 years because it really hasn't come out. It was very fortuitous in terms of the personalities that were involved and what happened. Because if certain folks hadn't been on leave John Warden's boss happened to be on leave in Disney World when this was all going down. If he had been in the building, he would have prohibited the planning that John and I started in the basement of the Pentagon, and none of this would have happened. But he happened to be out of the building. So early on, I believe it was the 6th of August, John and I got together alone in his office and talked about, what can we do? And I'll share with you that John actually said, well, you know, we're up at the air staff. This is a combatant command responsibility. This is CINCOM's job. What can we do? We have to put together some thinking about how we would approach this. What are the kinds of actions that need to be taken and put together in a plan that could coerce Saddam to stop any further aggression or advancement? 
so the next day we got together in Checkmate, which is a division. People think about it as a, it was all of what Warden had. No, he was the head of the organization called Warfighting Concepts Development that had five subdivisions underneath of it, one of which was Checkmate, which was an internal wargaming place. But it was the largest of divisions, so it was a good place to meet. It's down in the basement of the Pentagon. And uh, we got together and we started postulating and breaking down Saddam's key centers of gravity. And we kind of broke it down into how do we analyze Iraq in terms of five key centers of gravity. And then my role was to decompose those into operational level centers of gravity. So I did some brainstorming and thinking and for leadership that was broken down to command and control communications. And then for uh, infrastructure, you know, bridges, railroads, and so on and so forth. I've got all the lists, but we came up with 12 operational level centers of gravity, which became the target sets. This is how we put it together. We went from these five strategic centers of gravity to 12 target sets, which were operational level centers of gravity. And then the targets themselves become the tactical level centers of gravity. Because you can take an oil refinery and then you can split it up and go into sub-elements on what you want to attack, which actually is what we did because we were trying to achieve outcomes, not absolute destruction of the adversary, these key centers of gravity or the tactical level centers of gravity. We're interested in achieving effects. And I would suggest to you that again, it's technology that allowed us to do this. There are three elements that actually allowed us to have the dramatic impact that we did in Desert Storm. Technology in the context of stealth and precision, but the key element in all of this that nobody really has delved into is this effects-based approach to planning that really brought it all together and allowed us to achieve a dramatic impact. So we started this planning process in the basement of the Pentagon. And while John and I had previously discussed the virtues of effects-based planning, the initial attack plan that we put together when we looked at key targets was developed on the basis of traditional destruction-based methodology. And here's what happened. Early on, the intelligence folks told us that there were two major sector operation centers that controlled Iraqi's air defenses. One of these sector operation centers was in Baghdad, and the other one was at Talil Air Base in southern Iraq. Now, these were hardened facilities that consisted of 37 feet of concrete and dirt and rock on top of two bunkers in the basement of each of these buildings. Now, the intelligence folks and the F-117 weapons officers figured out that they could destroy the bunkers in the basement of each of these sector operation centers, but it would take a combination of eight GBU-27s, which were 2,000 pound penetrating munitions, and GBU-10s, which were non-penetrating. But if you drop one right after the other, you could dig down to reach the control center or the bunkers. So if you do the math, that takes 16 weapons per sector operation center to destroy those bunkers. Now at the time, in early August of 1990, we'd only been allocated 16 operational F-117s for planning use. So if you do the math, and I've done it plenty of times, 
killing both of these bunkers in each one of the sector operations centers used up all 16 F-117s. You know, there's two bombs on an F-117, two times 16 is 32. You got four bunkers, eight weapons each, that's 32. So it makes sense to use up those resources if in fact you can really poke the eyes out and cover the ears of the enemy, which would allow the rest of the force to come into theater. So that was in the initial laydown of the attack plan that we put together. Now I'm leaving a bit out here. Well, let me just very briefly hit it because what we did in the basement of the Pentagon in about 10 days was put together an operations plan that we then took down to brief General Schwarzkopf, who was the Central Command commander at Central Command headquarters in Tampa. We thought we would be done at that time. Okay, here's some initial thoughts. Here's the plan. It'll help you out. Thanks very much for the opportunity to participate. See you later. Well, it turns out when we went down there to brief General Schwarzkopf, he asked Colonel Warden, okay, now I want you to take this plan over and brief General Horner. General Horner was the Central Command Air Force's commander who Schwarzkopf trusted and had left previously in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, to help with the bed down of forces. Now you need to understand Saudi Arabia had never allowed any US forces, much less armed forces, enter their country. It was a very different environment that exists today. The Middle East was a backwater. It was the last place on earth that the Department of Defense was concerned with. So all of this was new and Horner had his hands full betting down forces in theater. So we believe we were contributing by helping them do some offensive planning because they simply didn't have the staff to do so. And in fact, that's what General Schwarzkopf did. The reason we got involved in this planning effort, General Schwarzkopf actually called General Dugan, who was the chief of staff of the Air Force at the time, but he was going on a trip. So General Lowe, who was the vice chief, took the call and Schwarzkopf asked for assistance from the air staff. And that's what gave us the authority then to begin doing some of this planning. Bottom line is after that meeting with General Schwarzkopf, Colonel Warden asked myself and two other folks, planners and checkmate, to go with him. And we hopped in, we were stuffed in the back of a RC-135 that stopped at Andrews Air Force Base the next day after we had briefed General Schwarzkopf and we were on our way to Saudi Arabia. Colonel Warden gave the presentation to General Horner. General Horner did not appreciate folks back in the Pentagon delving into what was rightfully, from his perspective, uh, his responsibility. And he remembered what went on in Vietnam, the target picking out of the White House and the overarching rules of engagement that were imposed on the military. And so I differ with Horner's concerns in that perspective because there's a big difference between the east side of the Potomac River and the west side of the Potomac River. We weren't civilians in suits with no knowledge of what was going on picking targets. We were military professionals trying to assist. But be that as it may, he had a very negative perspective toward John Warden. Now, here's where personalities matter. Turns out that five years prior to this, then Brigadier General Chuck Horner was the Air Division Commander at Tyndall Air Force Base. 
And Captain Dave Deptula was an F-15 instructor pilot who happened to be assigned to fly with General Horner. So I was General Horner's wingman, flight lead, if you will, because he didn't carry a flight lead status. And so we flew together and he knew me and he trusted me. So after this diplomatic briefing from Colonel Warden to General Horner, he asked me to stay and he sent John home. Quite frankly, that was fortuitous too, because John went back to Checkmate and Checkmate became a source of information and intelligence that in providing us in the planning cell, later becoming known as the black hole, information that we just could not get access to from Riyadh. The Central Command Intel section didn't have any of that information. So that was very, very useful the way it ended up. That gives you a little bit of background behind the personality piece and how I ended up in theater as the key planner. Because now the next day, General Horner recognizes he needs to focus on an offensive element here. But he also knows that it's extraordinarily sensitive. He's got to have somebody in charge. He trusts me, but I'm a lieutenant colonel, okay? Turns out there's this guy by the name of Buster Glosson who had been banished to... JTF Mideast as the deputy commander on board the USS LaSalle about a year prior. And Horner knew him and trusted him. So he called and arranged to have Glosson come up. He was a one-star. So we put him in charge of offensive planning. And I end up the next day now briefing Glosson, our instant thunder plan. He recognizes right away that, okay, this guy's got the insight and I'll be candid here. Buster then became sort of the brawn and he was able to make things happen and relied on yours truly to provide the planning insights. And we built a planning cell around the two of us. We brought on board people who were expert in particular weapon systems and represented different perspectives. We had a Red Sea battle group representative from the Navy. We had a Persian group representative. We had an army guy. We had a special operations guy and a 111 expert and F-15 expert. So all these folks flowed into, and the reason it became called the black hole is because it was so classified that once you got into the group, you're never going to leave. It was a small group, not more than 10, 12. I think we had probably ended up with 20 people by the time the war started, but that was it. And so that's sort of how this personalities became very, very important in how it developed. But let me go back because I want to explain to you and your audience how this notion of effects-based thinking actually became a reality. So we go over and give this presentation to General Horner. I end up staying there and we begin to accelerate the plan. And it's very difficult to pass on just how intense the planning effort was. There's nothing else I've done in my life that was as intense as those days in mid-August of 1990. And I've done a lot of stuff. I've gone to fighter weapons school, which is an excruciatingly challenging effort. I've flown in combat and had people shot at me, but nothing was as intense as this because General Horner expected an executable air tasking order within five days. And that was a rolling five days. We were always thinking that we were going to execute within five days, whatever the day happened to be. 
because it always slipped. So we're up 20, 21 hours a day building a plan. You can imagine there are new resources. When I mean resources, I mean aircraft, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, Saudi, Royal Air Force, Kuwait, you know, the coalition partners, you always have additional assets flowing into theater. Then you've got new intelligence information. Remember, Iraq is not a hotspot in terms of U.S. military planning at the time. So I put up a map, which I still have today in my office, of Iraq, just so we could identify where Basra is versus Mosul. I thought Mosul was a river in Germany. You know, I didn't know it was a city in northern Iraq. And so doing initial planning, we had to have a geographical understanding of what was going on. Some of the intel we had at the time was two years old. There was no such thing as Google Earth. Trying to get imagery was extraordinarily difficult. And when there was imagery, the intel folks wanted to hold on to the pictures. I remember one night, we're trying to prepare attack packages to send down to Kamis Mache, which is where the 117s are hanging out. And the chief of intel comes in and starts yelling at me for taking their pictures and putting them in packages and my God, actually sending them to the pilots who are gonna fly these attack missions because then he wouldn't have a picture. It was incredible. Anyway, I'm sorry, I digress a bit. Extraordinarily intense pressure to put out and changes are going on by the minute. A matter of fact, that's how I came up with the name of Master Attack Plan because I'm sitting down at one end of the table assimilating all this information and writing what is an attack flow plan. In other words, here are the TOTs for this particular day. Here are the targets. Here's the force package that's going to be put together for that attack. And then I would hand it down the table to a guy by the name of Dave Waterstreet, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Waterstreet. He would type this stuff up into the only computer we had in the room into a program called CAFM's Computer Assisted Force Management System which then generated the air tasking order. And he'd come down about every five minutes. He goes, what's changed? And after a while, I went, you know, this is crazy. So I said, Dave, here's what we're going to do. You work on what I give you at this time. And about every six hours, I'm going to take what I have. By the way, I don't have a computer. I'm doing this with a yellow legal pad and a pen. I'm going to take what I got and I'm going to post it on this bulletin board over here. And that's what we'll call the master attack plan. And we'll date it and time date it. And so about every six hours, I'd do an iteration and then I'd post it. And these changes went on all the way from mid-August to January, even just for the first 24-hour attack plan. And then, of course, we roll into dynamic execution and they changed on a daily basis. But it was extraordinarily intensive. So bottom line, we're in the middle of doing that and we're frantically trying to turn a master attack plan into an air tasking order, as I described. And on the 30th of August, General Glosson and I end up flying down to Manama, Bahrain to brief Admiral Maws. Now, Admiral Maws was the precursor to Admiral Stan Arthur, who was the commander of all the naval forces in the Gulf. And we wanted to brief him on the air campaign plan. Because, you know, I mentioned how classified this stuff was. And we didn't have the kind of secure internet that we have today. Be that as it may, Horner didn't want anything sent over any electronic means, nor over telephone. So we flew out to physically brief him on what was going on. And after we completed that briefing, 
as we're taking off out of uh, Bahrain, the C-21 that we're in fills up with smoke and you know those little yellow masks that fall down from the ceiling. Well, they actually fell down from the ceiling and Buster and I look at each other and we put on our mask. And what had happened is there was a small fire or that had broken out behind the instrument panel on the thing. The place fills up with smoke. But bottom line, he lands. And now we're sitting there on the ramp, the tarmac, for about two, three hours, waiting for another C-21 to come out and get us to fly us back to Riyadh. Well, prior to this trip, I had asked from the intelligence folks for a document that was known as Proud Flame. It was a Proud Flame analysis of the Iraqi air defense system. Now, all I'd known prior to this was what Intel had told me. These two sector operations centers controlled everything in Iraq. Well, as we're waiting on the airplane, I finally get out this document and I start reading it. And what I find out is there aren't just two sector operations centers in Iraq, there are four. And then associated with each one of these four, there are three to five interceptor operations centers. And they can take over control of the air defense system and they're all interconnected. It's a network designed by the French and put together for the Iraqis. So as you might imagine, now instead of dealing with two sector operation centers, I've got over 30 different nodes that I've got to deal with. This dramatically changes the target planning problem in order to paralyze the air defense system in one blow. So what to do? Uh, I want to achieve a debilitating effect to enable our non-stealth aircraft to ingress successfully. But there simply aren't enough F-117s to be able to covertly sneak up on these guys and attack them all as a, the different target bases grew. So the next day, while we're in Riyadh, we're sitting in our small planning room, the black hole, as I mentioned, I'm having discussions with the Intel folks. By the way, you know, when we asked them, General Glosson asked me, he said, why didn't you tell us this? And you know what the answer was? You didn't ask us. I'm not kidding. I could talk a whole nother hour about the dysfunction of intelligence during that time frame. But the bottom line is I postulated that a 2,000 pound bomb could go off in the other end of the building that we were planning in, which was the Royal Saudi Air Force headquarters. And while we wouldn't be dead, we sure as heck wouldn't hang around to finish off our coffee. So what struck me was we didn't need to destroy each sector operations center the first night. We just needed to render it ineffective, you know, and make sure no one would come back to the facility. If you go to your workplace and one night it's blown up with a 2,000 pound bomb in it, are you going to go back the next day to work? Probably not. All right. So what I did was I went back and I rewrote the attack plan, not putting 8117s on each sector operations center, but rather one bomb on each one of these targets. And yes, the accuracy of the F-117 was that good, which takes us back to the point I made in the first place. You know, I didn't need a thousand airplanes. I only needed one. As a matter of fact, I only needed one bomb out of one airplane. So what that did was that now frees up 30 GBU 10s and 27s that I could use against these other interceptor operation centers and chemical, biological, and other critical targets. So I hope that makes some sense in the context of thinking about and targeting for effects. Now, Intel, they'd come to me and say, Colonel Deptula, you're just making this too hard on yourself. Just tell us 
what level of destruction you want for each one of these targets. Here are the targets. You tell us what level. And we'll come up with the weaponeering plan to be able to do that. And I go, well, what happens if you guys run out of weapons and aircraft before you get to be able to shut down this target set? I said, well, then we just start again the next day. I go, well, no, you guys don't get it. I want to achieve an impact. I don't want the air defense system to be able to operate. So I don't have to go out and destroy every one of these radar facilities. I just need to put them out of commission. We did the same thing with electricity. That's another great example. So there were 26 targets in the electric target set. And on the 15th of February, we get this report back from Central Command intelligence folks saying that we had not met our objectives in the electric target set because we hadn't destroyed each one of the 26 individual targets to an 80% level of destruction. By the third night of the war, there had not been an electron flowing in anywhere in the Iraqi power grid. So why would you go back to destroy those facilities? A matter of fact, part of the special operating instructions that we gave to our forces were do not attack the generator halls when you attack the electric facilities, attack the transformer yards. Why? Because we could rapidly go back in and reestablish electricity with transformers. You destroy the generator halls, you got to build a new electric facility. You follow me? But guess what? Guess what the munitions manual that's issued to every strike squadron, this is a catalog of types of targets. So you open it up and it tells you what to hit. If you open up that manual and you go to electric target set, what does it tell you to hit? It tells you to hit the generator halls because it's destruction-based. It's a destruction-based methodology that's a holdover from World War II. So some people didn't get the spins and they ended up dropping bombs on the generator halls. But the fact of the matter is we halted any targeting of electric facilities after there was no electricity flowing out. So I'm looking for effects-based feedback. I'm not looking for percentage levels of destruction. And in order to do that, because intelligence could not handle that, they could only deal with levels of damage and destruction. So I built my own feedback loop inside the black hole. When it came to integrated air defenses, I had a captain who worked for Electronic Security Command at the time. I said, here's what I need to know every day. I don't care how you get the information, but I need to know whether these sector operation centers or interceptor operation centers are transmitting. If they're transmitting, they'll get a visit from an F-117 that night. If they're not, I'm not going to attack them. At the end of the war, I went back and I kind of looked at the assessment of how many weapons we put on whatever targets. We never put more than four weapons in any one of those sector operation centers because they weren't radiating. We'd accomplish our desired impact or effect. If we had gone with the initial intelligence recommendations, we would have dramatically increased the demand on the number of weapons and aircraft. But because we used an effects-based approach, not just on electricity, not just on air defenses, but across the board. And that's something I kept up here in my head. I didn't write down the methodology, but every day during execution, hundreds of target recommendations would flow in. And I do a quick assessment as to whether they would contribute or not to the operational level goal for each target set. And if they didn't, I just throw them out. 
And that is astonishing because we kind of take this for granted in war today, the idea that you send a missile, it's going to hit the target and you need maybe one missile per target, especially when you look at the way in which warfare is a practice today with drone warfare and the idea of targeted killing, right? One shot, one kill. But this was something that was pretty new when we came to the Gulf War. And the fact that you noted this and you were able to plan accordingly really shows how you're able to get, well, more bang for your buck and really achieve the effects that you wanted to. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Maybe you can take us through a little bit of detail about how effective this actually was during Instant Thunder. What sort of successes did you see? How quickly were you able to send Saddam and his commanders both blind and deaf and unable to coordinate with their troops on the ground? Well, it's a great question. We stopped using the term instant thunder after John Warden left because Chuck Horner didn't like it. He didn't like the term. He didn't like John. He didn't want anything to do with it. But the essence and the heart of what we had initially planned was the basis of the Gulf War Air Campaign. Call it whatever you want. What I did was essentially centafize the instant thunder plan. And in that time frame, I came to realize that if you want to get your ideas accepted by your leadership, is what you need to do is convince the leadership that your ideas are really their ideas. That's step number one. And number two, don't worry about who gets the credit. Because if you're interested in, in applying these capabilities, because you know that they are, they're correct and they'll advance the process, that's what's important. It's not the credit, but people are human beings. So the way you get things done is, hey, yeah, that's a great idea, General Horner. You might want to think about this. Oh, yeah, that's a great idea, sir. 
that's what went on with the interaction with uh, myself, General Gloss, and General Horner. General Horner was smart enough to know all of this. He really was a, a wise individual. The other one that was very wise is General Schwarzkopf. Here's why. Because Schwarzkopf, even though he's an Army four-star, unlike many of his the folks that followed him, he was interested in true joint force operations. In other words, using the right force at the right place at the right time. He saw advantages to air power. He didn't want to jump headlong in with all these hundreds of thousands of forces in an attrition-based battle that would cause a lot of casualties. Schwarzkopf knew that, so he took advantage of air power. And that's why in this 43-day campaign, 90% of it, the first 39 days, were only air forces involved outside of some special ops dudes, but no conventional army forces. The institutional army hated that. They didn't like Schwarzkopf. And after the war, they made a pact never to allow or agree to an air campaign prior to a land operation. At a minimum, they have to go simultaneously. You saw that happen in Operation Iraqi Freedom. But anyway, these were two wise gentlemen. But in terms of when we saw impacts, by the way, Horner brought Schwarzkopf down to the black hole 15 hours before the start of the conflict. And I gave Schwarzkopf a rundown on what we were going to do. And then after he left, Horner came back and just he and I standing in there. And I said, so what do you think, sir? He goes, Dave, I'd be happy if we can accomplish about 50% of what you've laid out. 50%? Because I'm planning for 100%. You never plan for half of what you're, you think you're going to do. But the bottom line at the macro level is that we were pretty surprised that we were able to accomplish the desired impacts that we did in such a rapid time frame. The first giant surprise came within 24 hours, and that is no losses. Now we found out later we had one aircraft lost, an F-18, but one airplane out of 3,000 plus sorties? My biggest concern that first night was not adversary shootdowns, but midairs. We had 161 tankers airborne at one time. Never in history had we had, nor did we practice all of that at one time. We practiced segments, but not all of it. And I can remember talking to one of the pilots later, and it was interesting because all the refueling was done lights out. In other words, none of the airplanes had the lights on which I thought was stupid because I said, look, you're refueling 200 miles south of the Iraqi border. No one's going to see you. The pilot I was talking to said, thank God we were lights out because if everyone had their lights on, there would have been so much distortion that people would have run into each other. So the lack of losses in terms of our attack force, the first 24 hour period was holy cow because we'd never used stealth before. General Horner was very wary of stealth. He was not a big believer in it. He wasn't that big of a believer in precision munitions. I'm talking back at the time, if he was sitting here, he said, well, Dave, that's not right. Well, yes, not right after the war, but before and during the war, the tactical air command leadership was really big into this notion of a dumb bomb delivered by a precision platform is all you need and is cheaper. And what I'm talking about is you got an F-16 with a continuously computed impact point, CCIP display 
where you've got a death dot, you put the dot on the target, you hit the pickle button and it hits the target. Well, that's fine for low altitude ingress, but when you're up at 20,000 feet because you want to avoid the AAA down below, not so accurate. Anyway, that's what I mean about perspectives at the time versus afterwards. Stealth worked, the plan worked, they were surprised. We shut down their air defenses. You know, we knew that within about two to three days. Because while there was some air-to-air engagements, I think 35 over the entirety of the war, in context, that's not many. That's because the Iraqis didn't come up to fight because they had no way to control them. This is the impact and the leveraged impact of doing some of the things that I described earlier in terms of taking out the sector operations centers. Remember, this military is built on a Soviet model. It's highly centralized. People out in the field are afraid to make a move without having permission. So if you cut those command and control links, you don't allow them to observe what's coming in, you paralyze the system. It can't work. So they start flying their airplanes to Iran to save them. Well, they just got through fighting an eight-year war with Iran. What in God's name are they doing? They feared us more than the Iranians. They wanted to save their force, figure, well, we can get them back later. So these are subjective, but they're indicators and much, much more important than levels of absolute destruction. So number one, the only one loss, the first night of the war was an enormous indicator. Then with respect to their air force and seizing control of the air by day three, we knew we had it. By day three, we also knew that we'd shut down, there wasn't an electron flowing in the Iraqi power grid. Electricity is such an leveraged target. And people say, well, yeah, but then they go on backup generators. Well, guess what? We also targeted the oil distribution infrastructure. So yeah, you can run on a generator for about 24 hours, then you're out of fuel. Okay, 48 hours, 72, you're done at some point. And that's what happened. So the collapse of air defenses, the collapse of command and control, the inability to communicate, the destruction of the infrastructure so they couldn't move. We isolated the forces in Kuwait and then pummeled them. I wrote a, a description. I mean, people kept on talking about, well, you know, guys are doing a good job preparing the battlefield. I go, we're not preparing the battlefield. We're destroying the battlefield. There's not going to be anything left. Schwarzkopf comes up with a 50% attrition for the field and military forces before he'll move in his ground forces to do the great prisoner roundup. Well, traditionally, an army becomes irrelevant and disestablishes its can't operate if you get 15 to 20%. Some people say as little as 10. We got 50 because, in a matter of fact, we had such a panoply of resources that early on I came up with this notion of kill boxes. We have too much stuff to be able to individually target against fielded military forces individually. So we divvied up Kuwait into 20 mile boxes or containers And basically, I would schedule a 16 ship of F-16s into kill box A3 for 20 minutes. And you're cleared to kill anything that you see that's of military value. Now, that was pretty unique to Kuwait, too, because you had Republican guards and you had divisions that are deployed out in the middle of the desert. So you don't have to worry about collateral damage. The only thing there are either bad guys, bad equipment, or camels. So that's how we dealt with that. I mean, it was just the amount of resources that we had was absolutely incredible. And the feedback from that was 
a lot of intel that we would get from the Iraqis. To this day, in the army keeps this classified, but it is the debriefs from the Iraqi general officers and leaders. And they're the ones that'll tell you, look, we were done. Over 50% of the Iraqi forces that invaded Kuwait were no longer there when the coalition ground forces moved into Kuwait. Not because they were all individually destroyed, but some of them deserted. Some of them went back to their families. They had no fuel. They had nothing to eat. They had no instructions. So they just walked back north, back into Iraq. So these are some macro level indicators that gave us some clues on how we were doing. Now on the downside, there were the impact of the scuds. Now in reality, these truly were terror weapons because they weren't accurate whatsoever. And when they did hit something, it was by luck. Matter of fact, the biggest loss of life that we had was a scud that hit a facility that had a bunch of people in it later on in the war. You know, that was just bad luck, if you will. Patriots were used to intercept them. Turns out they weren't all that accurate, but they were accurate enough. We did our best from the air perspective to target known scud facilities. But if you don't have the missile on the launcher at the time, you're not going to be able to do too much damage. So what we reverted to was a major effort to search for scuds, but in reality, to try to destroy their command and control facilities and their lines of communication to the best extent that we could. But they still ended up shooting scuds. I mean, we reduced the numbers that were launched because of our other efforts, but we never shut them off completely, which points to the incredible importance of intelligence. At the end of the war, the Air Forces came under a lot of uh, pressure for, well, hey, you guys didn't kill any specific scuds. And my response to that was, well, did the Army kill any scuds? No. Did the Navy kill any scuds? No. Did the Special Operations Forces kill any scuds? No. I said, the issue isn't the modality through which you destroy the scud. The issue is you have to have the knowledge of where they are. And then we'll deal with getting rid of them. It doesn't matter whether it's air, sea, land, whatever to, to, to use to destroy them. But it's just underlined the importance of intelligence. You also have to understand is we didn't have the kinds of rapid response that we have today. We didn't have 24-7 overwatch like we have today with the uh, drones, remotely potted aircraft, UABs, whatever you'd like to call them. We did use those, but not from an intelligence gathering perspective, but rather from, we used a couple of drones as uh, with emitters on them to excite the air defenses, to bring up their surface-to-air missiles so we could, again, launch high-speed anti-radiation missiles at them. But that was the extent of our target drones. It's just astonishing what you were able to achieve. But I've got to ask, Saddam put a lot of threats out there to start with. He said that yours is a society which can't accept 10,000 dead in one battle. And he said that this was going to be the mother of all battles. He was drawing on that experience in Vietnam that you've spoken about, that so many people still had in their heads about the way in which America fights wars. Was there ever any inkling, any thought in your mind that you weren't going to achieve the level of success that you did? Was there any point at which it faltered? No, no, not after the first 24 hours. I mean, obviously, you don't know what you don't know before you start. Like I told you earlier, I was surprised that in that candid conversation General Horner shared with me is, you know, I'd be happy if we can accomplish 50% of what you've laid out in the plan, Dave. 
I wasn't thinking, you know, look, you're going to have, you know, no plan survives contact with the enemy, but you put together a plan to make it work. But after the first 24 hours, we were pretty confident that we just need to keep this up. Now, then there was the incursion at Kafchi. That was early on. The Iraqis did an offensive push south. But again, air power technology comes into play here. We had J-STARS up. J-STARS was still in its prototyping phase, but it was deployed to theater. And the J-STARS essentially is a former 707 platform, big aircraft that has a, what's called GMTI, ground moving target indicator radar on it. So what it does is it can see all weather, day, night, see through clouds, storms, movement of forces on the ground. Well, the Iraqis do this ground incursion to Kafchi, which is in Saudi Arabia, but we saw it coming. And so Horner redirects a whole bunch of air and just pummels these guys. There's only a very small Royal Saudi Army unit that's out there, but we destroy them with air power. And so that was really their only attempt at any kind of offensive action other than the Scuds, but the Scuds were manageable. So after that initial onslaught, there was no question. Where there was a question was how rapidly this thing was brought to a halt. But we were all surprised and shocked that operations were directed to be halted as rapidly as they were. And I think what we found out afterwards in the debriefs with the Iraqi leadership is, look, we just would have simply collapsed and had to leave if you'd continued the air operations any longer. Well, it really is an emphatic victory, right? Especially one for the US Air Force. And I remember when me and you first met a few years ago, you telling me about how Iraqi soldiers were trying to surrender to those targeting drones in the sky because they could tell if the drones come over, then the next thing coming in were the pinpoint precision missiles and artillery. And of course, then the war itself, the ground war is what? The 100-hour great prisoner roundup. But like you say, it gets brought to an end so quickly. It's February 28th, ceasefire announced by the president, President Bush Sr. Is this something that does surprise you? Is it something that you think was a mistake at the time? You know, if we look back, could the next war in Iraq in 2003 have been avoided if more decisive action was taken at the time? Yeah, well, the short answer to that is yes, it could have. And some of us were interested in securing regime change in 1991. But that was not anticipated nor desired by the senior most leadership in the United States or the coalition. Part of it is I think this happened so fast that they didn't think through it all on what the consequences would be. Part of it was circumstantial too. Schwarzkopf goes to Safwan to negotiate. And you know, even he says so in his book, the night before he sat down and he goes, what am I gonna ask him for? Well, that's not the time to be thinking about what are you gonna ask him for? This is where in terms of strategy, you wanna start with the end game in mind or desired and then work backwards on how you get there. Now, another little unknown piece of this picture that I'm gonna write about is that before the war started, a good friend of mine who worked at RAND at the time and now is, and has been the ambassador to Afghanistan, and now he's Ambassador uh, Khalilazad. At the time, he was a researcher at Rani, brings to me a surrender document that had been thought through. You know, he said, look, get this up to the senior leadership. And so I do, I take it over there, and I send it up the chain. 
the response I got back was, thanks, Dave, but this really isn't our area of concern. We're military folks. And I thought to myself, mm, you guys don't get it, do you? But whatever. We're in the middle of starting a, or this pressure to start a war. But I flash back after Schwarzkopf thinking the night before, okay, what am I going to ask him for? Well, we, we gave you a frapping document that was thought through in terms of surrender means. So what happens? The Iraqis then start using their attack helicopters because Schwarzkopf granted them the use of attack helicopters to move equipment because the Iraqis told them, look, you destroyed all our roads and bridges. We can't get around. We need to use our helicopters. So Schwarzkopf goes, yeah, sure, go ahead, use them. And just prior to this, the president of the United States had sent out a message encouraging the people of Iraq to stand up, revolt, and overthrow your leadership. And then what do we do? We don't follow through on that. And we allow the Iraqis to fly their attack helicopters and they put down the insurrection. So the end game was messy. It was more messy than people think about in the context of what really happened. I think what they wanted to do, this is the president and Brent Scrocroft and the coalition folks is, okay, let's make this quick. Let's make it clean. Let's get the hell out of there. And look, I'm not arguing against that. I mean, that, that's what happened. So you can't argue the point. It was a rapid victory. The points were very clearly established in the context of we want to secure Kuwait. We want to get the enemy out and return this country to its sovereign ownership. That's clear. That's understandable. It's achievable. We did it. Boom, we're done. Or I think the other part got a little bit too messy I don't know to what degree they actually considered going forward and eliminating Saddam's regime. There was concern. I, later, I talked about this with Wolfowitz. When I was at War College, he brought Cheney along and, and Wolfowitz and I got in a discussion because he was of the same mindset I was. Let's finish these guys off at the time. And we could have done that, but it hadn't been planned through. So they selected the first option, which was the clean option. It also goes to show what strategic impact socialization and dissemination of information show. Those last four days, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. It was a turkey shoot against the Republican Guard forces leaving Kuwait. Well, that's what you want in warfare. You want an asymmetric advantage. You want to destroy the enemy. We could have eliminated, eliminated, not halted, but eliminated the Republican Guard. And we could have taken down Saddam at the time, but it is what it is. One can talk about whether that should have been done or not should have been done, but if it had been done then, yes, we wouldn't have had 10 years or 12 years of no fly zones following that. You could make the case that there wouldn't have been the suffering of the Iraqi people. But again, what would Iran would have done? There were concerns that Iran, if you made Iraq too weak, Iran would come in and take over Iraq. So that was part of the equation. So there's no definitive solution on whether it was the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do, but we do know what was done, and that was that the operations were called off when the Iraqis were ejected from Kuwait. I suppose my final question to you, Dave, is you've provided us with a really honest account of the Gulf War, and there are so many elements of pinpoint precision later might be called surgical strike and this effects-based bombing and the idea that you can really take out these key nodes and you can destroy the command and control of your enemy. 
But like you say, that was one element of the war. There was also massive amounts of destruction as well, especially on Iraqi troops. You look at the forces in the desert, you look at the use of cluster bombs and high explosives on Saddam's troops, and of course the infamous Highway of Death incident as well. Do you think that we take too many lessons from the Gulf War that sanitize that war and make it out to be this perfect precision war when actually, like you say, you want that asymmetric advantage. War is bloody. War is going to be about destruction. And does it set a bit of a precedent as we go through the 1990s into Kosovo, you know, the perfect war with zero casualties, and then maybe makes too many promises about Afghanistan 2001 and Iraq 2003, which are very, very different wars? Well, a couple of things there. First, no, people take their interpretations the way they want to take their interpretations. If you have an understanding of what went on here, I am an enormous enthusiast because I've been, I'm one of the few Air Force officers that have actually been a Joint Force commander before, having Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marine forces serve under me in combat. It is all about using the right force at the right place at the right time. But so often people like to be black and white and they view and they say, well, Desert Storm was all about precision, blah, blah. Well, no, it wasn't. Like you said, attrition has its place. But unfortunately, there are people out there that have viewed that because it, for 10,000 years, that has been the principal application of force and use of force. You know, and they only think that that's the only way you can win wars. Well, that's not true. And then you bring up Iraq and Afghanistan, which are completely different situations when you get into counterinsurgencies, but it's also one of setting proper objectives, which goes back to our last discussion. I would tell you that we accomplished our critical U.S. national security objectives in Afghanistan by the 31st of December 2001. We'd removed the Taliban from governance. There was a government that got into place that was friendly to U.S. and allied interests, and we'd eliminated the al-Qaeda terrorist training camps in Afghanistan. See you later. We're out of here. You do it again and we'll be back. But what would happen is we were so successful in those two and a half months of operations that Central Command had not even completed their deployment planning for deploying their presumed decisive force, ground forces, to move into theater. So when they got there, then they looked around and said, well, now what do we do? We're here. So you saw the biggest example of mission creep in history from accomplish these critical security interests to try to change a collection of 16th century tribes into a modern Jeffersonian democracy by building wells and schools and training their people. Come on, that's unobtainium. So objectives are part of this equation. How you get to them is going to change based on what those objectives are and what the technologies of the day are. We went through at the beginning the difference between World War II and, and, and Desert Storm. The theories were there. You want to go against leveraged elements without which an adversary gets bogged down and ultimately can't operate. There's still people that argue against that today. I don't understand why, because it's been built into their DNA that armies have to fight armies on the ground. That's part of it, but for what reason? You know, in Desert Storm, it was, yeah, you had to have folks on the ground to go in and reoccupy the territory. But the folks on the ground weren't the ones that accomplished the conditions that resulted in the collapse of the Iraqi army. 
and so there needs to be a mature look at all the different elements that go into a conflict relative to the conditions of whatever it is. That's the beauty of joint force operations, a real true joint force operations, because you have a joint force commander who can pick from the different component capabilities to meet the needs of a particular contingency. And every contingency is going to be different. Operation Unified Assistance was tsunami relief in South Asia. That's what the war I was the JFAC in. You don't need a whole lot of army there. It was major. You don't need a lot of Marines either. Some Navy, but not even much of that. It was principally an airlift operation to distribute humanitarian assistance in response. That's a lot different than in Afghanistan, which is a lot different than a Desert Storm or a Kosovo. And so mature planners and wise planners look at the particular contingency, start at the end game, what do you want the outcome to be, and then work backwards to fill in and work from an effects-based perspective. What is it that I want to have happen and how's the best way to make it happen? So I would suggest to you kind of in my summary that Desert Storm was a turning point in the conduct of warfare as it set the conditions for modern warfare in five major ways. First, it set the expectations for low casualties on both sides of the conflict. Think of that. After Desert Storm, man, if we started to count on our hands the number of casualties, very much different than previous major theater conflicts. Second, it presaged precision in the application of force for all future conflicts. You alluded to that. In Desert Storm, we had about five to 8% of all the weapons used were precision munitions. In Operation Inherent Resolve, 99% of all the weapons were precision. Now this creates a problem because one bomb, one target doesn't always work. I mean, what was nice in Desert Storm is I had area munitions, timed area munitions that I'd use in conjunction with some other munitions, for example, to deny the Iraqis access to their chemical and biological storage units. So area weapons are good from a warfighting perspective. We need the whole spectrum of weapons, but precision obviously is important. Precision effects, okay? The other thing Desert Storm did is it introduced the prosecution of a combined joint air campaign, integrating all coalition service air operations under the functional command of a single airman. In other words, a joint force air component commander. Why that's important. And by the way, airs facilitates itself to this use because it's fungible. And as a planner, I didn't care whether an airplane had U.S. Navy painted on the side, U.S. Marine Corps, U.S. Air Force, Royal Saudi Air Force, Royal Air Force, whatever. I'm interested in what capabilities does it bring to bear. Number four, it established desired effects as the focus of strategy in the planning and conduct of operations. Now, there's some folks that have pushed back. I mean, my war college classmate, Jim Mattis, when he was a uh, Joint Forces Command commander, banished the term effects-based operations. Well, he and I have talked about that, and he did it for a reason that made sense inside of Joint Forces Command, but his action was misinterpreted by many others, and frankly, he shouldn't have done it. I mean, it's sort of like, hey, you're the commander of Joint Forces Command, and you're banning the use of not a concept. This was the basis of the success of Desert Storm. But what had happened in Joint Forces Command is you had a bunch of Army and Marine colonels 
that are so used to checklists that they put together like a 56 step checklist that once you got to the end of that, then you're successful in accomplishing your effects-based operation, which is nonsense. So I agree with them with getting rid of that kind of an approach, but thinking from an effects-based methodology is just that, it's a methodology. It's as simple as what is it that you want to accomplish? And then thinking about how do you accomplish it? And today you can't go into a discussion in the Pentagon without somebody from the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. By the way, the other reason Jim didn't like it is because an airman had come up with the idea. But every service talks about desired effects today. So that was a big impact. And then finally, number five, for the first time in history, air power was used as the key force or the centerpiece in the strategy and execution of a war that was overseen by an Army four-star. It doesn't mean the air power was the only thing. It wasn't. I acknowledge that, but people have to acknowledge that it was the key force. And if you're truly going to be a believer and an executor and applier of joint force operations, you have to have an open mind that any one of the components, you got to look at which domain do you exploit? You want to exploit all of them, but you're probably going to have one that's key. And you may not, but we shouldn't preclude that by doctrinal proclamations that land power is always going to be the centerpiece of warfare, because it's not. Dave, thank you so much. At this important 30-year mark, it was just so, so useful, so, well, interesting to be able to get your points of view and your perspective on this pivotal conflict, its legacies and its enduring impact on conflict today. Well, James, thank you for the opportunity to do so. I really enjoyed it. Have a great new year. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.